Welcome everyone to Yay Live, the loyalty podcast for direct-to-consumer brands. We are here to help you navigate a new loyalty playbook to build a long-lasting and successful brand. And for this episode, I'm really happy to welcome Kusha and Ben, the two founders of Ninepine, an athleisure and activewear brand founded in 2019 with Swedish and Australian roots. The label specializes in functional, technical activewear with a minimalistic and contemporary look. So with Ben and Kusha today, we'll deep dive into the secrets to their exponential growth with just a team of two and how they use automation to optimize operations to improve efficiency and reduce costs. So thank you very much for joining us on Yay Live, the loyalty podcast for direct-to-consumer brands. So let's get to it. Could you please introduce yourself and Nine Pine? Ben, maybe you want to start? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm originally from Sydney, Australia, and moved over to Sweden as a young, fresh-faced 20-year-old. And I have a background, you know, in my past life as a swimmer, and I went to business school in Sydney, background in finance and accounting. And when I went to Sweden as an exchange student originally, but then okay. I went to a Stockholm School of Economics. That's where I met Kusha. And we both, you know, had a background in entrepreneurship, so we connected naturally. And yeah, and afterwards, we were lucky enough to both land jobs at Facebook yeah. and really got deep into e-commerce and apps, primarily customer acquisition. Okay. And we can go into a little bit more afterwards, but that's how we connected. Yeah, so to be honest, a similar story to Ben. I have a business school background as well. So when I started business school and I met Ben at, at Handels High School in Stockholm, and we clicked pretty much right away. It was like we had this entrepreneurial vein <laughs> inside us. And uh, yeah, which is also, I think, the reason why we didn't settle for or decide to go for consulting or banking. And uh, yeah, and now we're here. Cool. Super interesting. Yeah, I guess you've learned a few tricks about position at Facebook that you can share with us. Uh, how do the idea of Nine Pine actually came about? Like, did you feel like there was something missing in the market? Did you experience, I mean, not yourself because it's women's run, right? But like your friends, how did you validate that idea actually? Yeah, so I would say that the reasons is multifaceted. If we break it down, I mean, number one was when we worked at Facebook, we saw it as a school, like a continuation of university. Yeah. And we saw the rise and rise and rise of e-commerce as well as apps. Yeah. And we saw the landscape throughout Europe and America and Asia. So we saw that this was a booming area and we had acquired, I guess, these kind of skills of know-how in customer acquisition, especially from the digital ads point of view. That's one side. The next thing was organizationally, we also had, through our job, we could see how organizations were run. Both Kush and I studied management yep. at Stockholm School of Economics. And, you know, that's when you learn you know, organizational theory and yeah, uh, cultural theory. At the same step. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, normally you kind of focus on these kind of really big conglomerates. Uh, and we got to see D2C brands, how they run, fashion brands, apps. And what really surprised me was how differently these kind of techie app kind of companies were run compared to retail. Mm. Uh, for example, in a lot of fashion brands, you have like the creative side, then you have the e-commerce side, you have the, the financial team. And they all kind of work in semi-silos, mm. uh, whereas in tech, you could say lean, agile, all the yeah. buzzwords, but um, a much more modern approach. Yeah. Uh, I, I think one of the key things that come with that is is much faster decision making. Yeah. You know, like Ben says, agile orgs, especially the tech companies and the apps that we worked with when we were at Facebook, we saw that 
you know, there were so many e-coms that came from being heritage e-coms. They weren't digital natives, so to speak, yeah. as we call them at Facebook. And they just lacked that ability to to make those decisions really quickly. And and the flatter organizations and the startups, they made better decisions. They made data-driven decisions. They they were moving much faster. More specifically about why we decided to go into e-com per se yeah. is like, Nipine is not our first e-com. And while Ben and I were at uni, we had everything from, we started an umbrella company with like a Nordic focus. We've started, you know, we did drop shipping when drop shipping was hot. Yeah. We sold vegan cork leather wallets for a while. We've tried a bunch of things. Okay. And then when it came to actually doing this for real, it's a, it's a big fat analysis, but at the same time, kind of like, okay, where do we know people? Where do we have some factors we know we can work with? How can we hit the ground running? And if we are as agile as we think as an org, we can always pivot and, and develop. So it was more about like actually coming to a point where we take action rather than having the perfect plan. Like they said at Facebook, you know, done is better than perfect. Yeah, interesting. So basically you said like you sort of like understood more of how to run e-com before setting up Ninepine. Correct. So why do you think Ninepine took off so fast compared to your other businesses? I think it's a, it's a combination. So, hmm. I mean, if we kind of go deeper into why we went into women's activewear. Yeah. So... You can break it down to like some macro factors and some kind of personal factors. From the macro point of view, e-commerce, especially with women, was on the rise. So you had some tailwind there. Athleisure wear was also on the rise, so you had tailwind there. And then on the product side, you know, my family has a background in textiles okay. in Asia. I am Asian. There's a, this natural, I guess, connection you can kind of build. I just, for example, my family is based in Guangzhou, okay. which is... Well, manufacturing yep. hub of the world, you could say. It helps, but it's not the end all and be all. And then also with from personal side, you know, both Kush and I like we're extremely active people. We come from a sporting background, semi professional in some ways. But also through his previous business we had some experience in that space already. So it made quite a lot of sense when we decided to transition out of the corporate world yep. to start with this. And we've had, like, in terms of a pivot, we have pivoted since we started in our approach. Okay. In which product-wise or model-wise? In both. So, okay. I mean, originally we, it was much more sport-focused, like okay. workout-focused. Yep. You would have, through the imagery, you would see a CrossFit box and okay. runners. And then we've kind of pivoted away from that. It's still part of the business, yet it's a little bit more, a bit more broad. It's a more of an everyday everything where mm. and what took you to that pivot data performance really so i mean for one i think pivot is is not the wrong word it's mm. for sure a pivot but i guess to pivot you need to have something well defined in the first place i guess this is as much as it's a pivot it's a process of something taking shape because you know i guess it's it's a matter of definition right when mm. are you at the point where you can claim this is what we are mm. and now we've pivoted and it's been a continuous process. It has taken shape. But like you said, you know, we went into apparel and kind of we started with activewear. We have these clothes. It wasn't the ambition from the start to sell women's activewear. We were going to launch men's stuff as well. But we knew from data, we knew from working with clients that these consumer decisions are and then the conversions come from women. So yeah. if we want to scale something where we can take a salary and focus on it full time from early and yeah. then this is going to be where it's at. That's, that's really how it started. And then I guess along the way, you see which products are working and you try test products and you launch variations and you do product research and us being, you know, two male founders and 
talking to women. We have to be data-driven because we can't even involve our own preferences. And in my opinion, we turned that into somewhat of a, not a superpower, I would say, but we turned it away from being a disadvantage because we sort of had to look at what is the data saying, what are the customers saying, and develop in that direction, uh, as well as look at macro, of course. Yeah, interesting. And that played a big part in, in this mm. shape. So, for example, you would see that some products which would fit more in the at leisure, less like sporty, would perform better? Or is it also an ad creative? Like, which data points really was, were, like, led you to take that pivot, if you can call it pivot? Mm. So it, it's multiple, right? It's It has to go with our whole business model because of, of us being, you know, we're running it as a very tight ship. We have to make all these decisions quickly on our own. So we're sort of looking at, okay, what is our product development process? Mm. And how do we make that fit into our way of working without you know, becoming fully overwhelmed, yeah. but still being able to do a good job. And I guess one of them is if our core competence is customer acquisition and marketing, especially with digital, then the products that we launch need to be pushable to a certain degree with a certain customer acquisition cost without having too high returns. So it's a, it's a balance of the unit economics than a product that is not just good enough, but we want to launch really good stuff. Like yeah. our main sustainability approach is to launch versatile garments that replace multiple other items. Yeah. Like us having recycled materials is just a bonus, really. Yeah, yeah. So there's so many factors. And I think the key to doing this successfully was we actually sat down and defined these. Like we created a model. We didn't just, oh, it's kind of this and it's kind of that. We sat down and we're like, for this part of the assortment, here's how we define what is pushable. What CPA do we need? You know, how much does it weigh? What's the cost of logistics? Yeah. Is it pushable in scalable markets? Maybe you have something that's super pushable in Finland, but that's not very scalable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess if you kind of summarize this, it's we are business people at the end of the day. And business fundamentals is something that's been important since day one. So having a tight check on our P&L on an hourly or daily basis. Um, so I think that's also one of the benefits of being so few since we bring to the table so many different perspectives. But even though... I'm the one designing products. You know, we have the insights about how marketable is this? What kind of cost of goods sold can we achieve? What kind of return rate can we expect? So all this is kind of mushed up into our process of coming up with product, which is a little different to maybe traditional fashion brands from what I've seen from the outside, where a lot of it is, you know, creatively driven and uh, passionately, which is fantastic. Super interesting. Because actually, uh, even though you say like fashion, you know, creativity is not the main, like the thing which drives you the most uh, in the company, I think it's more business, as you say, but still, I think there is a look and feel in the product, in the website, I also experience a store, which is very minimalistic. And I mean, you still have a very visible touch. I would say like you can experience, okay, this is a nine pine product versus like, it's not like any product can look like yours, right? So this is still a strong component of your brand. To what extent do you think this is still like a part of your reason of your success? I think to a very large extent when it comes to, for example, repeat purchase, Mm. um, you know, if you encounter our brand for the first time ever, for a lot of people, it's like upper premium pricing segment. I mean, we would, we could claim it's affordable premium, but affordable is, it's all a matter of definition, right? Subjective. Yeah. So for us, having uniqueness is, or originality rather, is a necessary to, to build this loyalty. You know, there are products that compete. Even if your product is semi-unique, if it's a pant, a unique pant is still a pant, right? Yeah. So we need the uniqueness factor, especially we need the quality. And that goes with the, you know, the whole experience of buying from us, receiving the product, feeling it, 
and when you feel it, you when you open it, you probably make the decision of do I keep this or not yeah. in the first 20 minutes, right? So we want that wow factor, but then it also needs to have a quality. Like you can't just send your fabrics through the most aggressive brushing process and people receive them and are like, oh my God, this is the softest fabric in the world. And then you get 10% reclaims because of, well, dog hair getting stuck on your pants or whatever. Yeah. So, so it's a balance. But yeah, I would definitely say us deciding from day one, we are not making compromises on the products. We define what is the margin that we need and we try to figure out if we need to bring costs down, yep. do it elsewhere yep. because we are not going to, you know, sell junk. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's very interesting about the repeat purchase, right? Like yeah. you have to tell a story and maybe you can tell us a bit more about how you actually work with that that part like of loyalty and making sure that customer like come back do you use like any tool how do you track that because you again like you're very data driven so can you share a bit about that yeah sure so i mean i wish we had the ability or rather had the time to prioritize working more proactively with it yeah i guess we are at a point in our in our business journey now where it's inevitable like we we have to work with it yeah. the reason why we haven't is you know out of the three and a half years nine fine has existed about two years or one and a half years of that was massive COVID tailwind, yeah. e-com, crazy growth. You know, a lot of e-coms came up and became big. And in times like those, we've mainly focused on restocks. And it's a luxury problem to have, but we we still have that issue, right? The the challenge of keeping your best sellers in stock and not overstocking stuff when the next viral product comes yeah. in and stuff. So if you only focus on your P&L, you're going to end up only restocking black, small, medium, and large of your best sellers, right? And a very necessary component of, of repeat purchase is launching more relevant stuff to your existing yeah. customer base. Now, we have had to balance that out, right? Because we don't want to become a business that launches, you know, 30, 40 products a month. Yeah. We're not a fast fashion business. Yeah. So honestly, we focused way more on growth and acquisition and kept an eye on repeat purchase. And I, th I think we're quite a bit above industry average on repeat purchase, even if you would look at people buying the same product again maybe in a different color, but often yeah. we sell our bestsellers to the same person you know, a few times a year with exact same product. Exact same product, exact same, same color. Same color, same product. They just want multiple. They want all, multiple. All the same. They want to wear it every day. Some people. I don't know. <laughs> some people. I hope they will. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> okay. uh, well, it's looking really promising on that front, right? Because at this point, when we're launching more colors, we're launching similar stuff in parallel to launching the new stuff. I think we have a lot of upsell potential and cross-sell potential to our customer base. Yeah. How do you work? Do you actually involve your customer in this type of decision? I mean, we hear more and more brands you know, doing like co-creation or survey, like engaging in social media. Do you also work with that? Or how do you decide like what's the next product you're going to launch? We, we do. We do. Yeah. So to answer that question, it's, I guess, you have to be very careful in, in co-creation in a sense. Well, I guess it's that the Ford kind of classic quote about if you ask people what kind of vehicle you want you want to faster horses right so you have to be quite careful in the data you, you collect luckily these days there are methods of polling people on mass so we do that sometimes we have focus groups yeah but then that's one perspective but then you also have macro perspectives as well i mean both kush and i do follow fashion weeks yeah. around the world and we see the reports and we see you know what's hot what's not so when I go into go down on the main street and I see pink, all of a sudden, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Because I think all these brands read the same reports. Yeah. 
So we have that perspective as well. Not that we follow fast fashion in that sense for our products. We're not going to launch pink. <laughs> We're not going to launch pink. I'm disappointed. <laughs> but then you see on the sales rack, you know, two months later. So it's quite multifaceted. And then the issue with having physical products is the, the learning cycle is much slower than, for example, an app or yeah, a of course. platform yeah. you can learn pretty much on the fly yeah. after shipping. But, you know, we have, you know, the whole production and then, and then the shipping and then obviously the sales time. And that's why we, we do have a process of, you know, not over ordering yeah. test products and then kind of seeing the results as they as they come and making decisions on that. Because it's very easy to say, oh, I would love to buy pink, but then it doesn't mean that we'll actually buy pink yeah, when yeah. it comes to it. What I'm super impressed when you look at your journey, and, and I mean, that's obviously like, you know, the growth and probably it's also due to the fact that you're super good and focused and, you know, na nail focus on the acquisition part. But I think what's even more impressive that you just do that with two employees, right? And I would like you to share a little bit more of your secret ingredient of growing a brand that fast without, you know, losing control. We talked about cash. I mean, I heard that you also have a financial background that probably like played a little bit on how good you are at managing that part. <laughs> You're smiling now. <laughs> so can you share some of your tips on how you achieve that so efficiently? Yeah. So Kush and I run the business SS2 and, you know, we kind of co-CEO. And if you kind of break down a business to the C-levels, you want to call it, you have, yeah. you have product, you have customer experience, you have CFO. What else do you have? CMO. Uh, CMO, maybe head of sales, conversion, website, whatever, tech. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we kind of share those hats and it can be, it's organized chaos. And I think that's one of the benefits. So, you know, I'm sitting here doing head of logistics and mm -hmm. head of product at the same, and head of creative direction at the same time. And then Kush is doing the head of sales, head of marketing, head of websites, performance. And I think that really works to our favor because I guess we have all these different perspectives when we make decisions. Yeah. So, you know, if it's from the, if we're thinking about a product, I mean, you have the perspective of the financials, you have the, of the conversion rates, of marketability. And, you know, this really helps us work. I mean... What's a, what's a corporate term they call it? Cross-functional. Oh, yeah. Cross-functional yeah. teams. <laughs> That's what you used to say. Yeah, so you think it's a strength, actually, to be... I mean, of course, when you see how you run the company, it feels like it's a strength. Absolutely. If you were to zoom out and look at what roles are we really doing, the two roles that are very, very much, you know, shared between us is, like, we're co-CEOing and co-COOing as well. Like, mm. we're, we're both very much in tune with the operations of the company, and we yep. make... I, I think, at least, we're very aware of the decisions we're making operationally. Yeah. Both of us coming from backgrounds, just uh, to be honest, like coming from lives where you've, we've both been very ruthless in prioritization. Ben used to train a lot, like as a swimmer. I used to train a lot of martial arts as well. And we both had, you know, pressure from our parents to perform well in school from yeah. a young age. Yeah. Right? You have to juggle all of that. And then you want to spend yeah. time with friends. Like be, becoming very ruthless and prio in life is a skill you take with you to, in my opinion, to entrepreneurship. Right? Yeah. And I think, one, knowing that, okay, we have this many hours a day. Yeah. Or a week. Sure, we, we work hard. We work a lot. But mainly we work focused and efficiently. And, and, you know, we call each other. We pick up the phone. We make decisions together sometimes two, three minutes. Then we go back to, to what we were doing. And, and we're trying to focus on that again. And then we've sort of defined these areas like, okay, what would a CMO do, for example? Well, CMO covers these areas. So let's have a, a weekly meeting that is, well, broadly what the CMO does. Mm. And then we go in into that meeting. And in that meeting, we don't focus on other things. Sure, we have the perspectives of our areas in the business yep. that we're not as involved in. 
but we really discussed that matter as if we were both the CMOs in that CMO meeting, right? For example, we had this meeting, when was that? Wednesday, two days ago, which sort of, it was that a week before your shoot? But it did change. We Together, we went down, we looked at the ads, and we created this prior list of like, okay, we have a full day with the model. Here's what we need. We need content for X, Y, Z. Yeah. And here's how we change it. So having these weeklies within every area of the business allows us to continue to keep, you know, mm-hmm. in, I think, a, a good grip of what's going on. And then, yeah, once again, just I, I can't stress it enough, like saying no to things that don't matter right now and mm-hmm. focusing on impact. Yeah, I think one of the quotes of classic big tech all, you know, the posters all over the office. And one of the values of, of old workplace was focus on impact. Yeah. Because, you know, in economics, you learn about opportunity cost. Yeah. And that's really central in how we live our lives. What's the opportunity cost of, of our time or effort? How can we make the biggest impact, revenue or profitability, incremental impact? We like to kind of highlight not just impact, but incremental impact on the business. Which task? Which, what are the lowest hanging fruits? Because impact sometimes is quite hard to define and incremental impact is even harder to mm. define. But just having that mindset, okay, how can we incrementally improve the business? Is yeah. uh, I think I have a way to tie this back to the finance question. Yeah. Uh-huh. Let me give it a try. <laughs> so, so I think focusing on impact and focusing on incrementality, right? Yeah. A, a very big topic here is decision-making in your marketing mix, digital marketing mix. Where do you spend money? Do you trust Google Analytics? Do you not? And from where we come from, you know, having countless discussions with big companies and small companies about attribution models. Like, who do you trust? Whose data do you trust? When we started this business, we knew, obviously, coming from Facebook, we knew that our advertising was going to be, you know, meta family of apps heavy. But we also knew we had to learn the rest of the landscape, which today we're on, you know, YouTube, Pinterest, Snapchat, TikTok, you name it. And from the start, we were like, okay, let's have a sheet where we, you know, we map out how much we spend daily on each of these platforms. That became our daily PL or to be honest, yeah. we look at it every six hours pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And from that, you know, that PL then led to becoming a, a more detailed daily, you know, cash flow analysis is connected to it and our quarterly plans are connected to it. And our, our growth in the coming three years is also connected to it. So like everything is built from the perspective of what is the core of our business and how do we continue making wise decisions in terms of, for example, where do we spend more money on marketing? Yep. to gain most incremental impact. And we took that mindset with us, I guess, to other areas of the business as well. How do we, you know, make as efficient decisions as possible to keep focusing on incremental impact? Yeah, yeah. because I mean, I was actually quite impressed. I think we mentioned that article that you did the case study with Uni, where they actually show your monthly spend on ads, which was 200K euro a month, which of course, you know, can sound like a lot for a business when you start. But of course, that you you spend on you have a very good return on investment on these type of ads. But do you have any advice on the management? Because I think for direct to consumer brand, you have to spend that on ads before you actually see the income coming. You have to pay a lot in advance for the goods that you purchase before you actually sell them. So it's something which usually can be hindering your growth. So do you have any tips or things that you learned along the way on how to manage that the, the most efficiently? In terms of cash flow management in general, I think. Because Ben and I are so invested in this and so focused on, you know, this is our, our life. This is what we do. Mm. Uh, we care so much that we ha- we just have to keep an eye on it. Yeah. And does that lead to us maybe not maxing out everything yeah. and not being very close to zero all the time? Of course. And does that lead to our growth being slower than it would have been otherwise? For sure. Mm. For sure. But do we regret not taking more risk? I mean, you can always sit and be smart in hindsight, right? Mm. 
So yeah, yeah and I, I would say that with regarding to the question about cash flow analysis, right? So it's it would be a lie to say that we build these beautiful models, Excel models, monthly. You know, like finance people would. We do quite a lot of back of the envelope kind of calculations. And of course, you know, sometimes from the inventory point of view, it's this is the biggest challenge as a seller of physical products. You know, you have quite a lot of cash inefficiencies when you have to pay yeah. to, for production and your money is locked mm. illiquid for a long time. Um, and of course, you know, some months you're cash flow negative. And especially when you're growing that we have, it is stressful. It is very stressful growing bootstrapping, you know, yeah. with that kind of, because you have to buy stuff. So there are still times when you're looking at the bank account, like, oh, yeah. you're kind of counting counting the days. But, you know, we do luckily have access to debt facilities. There are many debt facilities. More tools now, yeah. Yeah, but luckily we haven't used so much of it. You know, if you ask a finance person, it's probably not the smartest thing not to use the debt. Yeah. But I guess it's perhaps just a reflection of our risk aversion. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, being profitable helps. As yeah, well, exactly. Because, right? you know, our profit is all reinvested into working capital. Yeah. But that's really how we finance our growth. I think cash flow management and like working capital is a quite obviously like unsexy part of, you know, running an e-commerce business. And there are others, everything which is related to logistics, it's quite often overlooked. Like we talked about stock, right? We talked about shipping just earlier before we started that recording. And you have been very also later focused on these parts. As I understand, like you keep a very close eyes on your shipping costs and, and everything and on the supply chain. So is there like anything you can share on that part on how you run the business and to make that part like very efficient. Yeah, I think if you if you break down the operational business, I mean, the task, you know, on one side, you have growing the business. And then on, on the second side, maybe more operational, it's keeping the business afloat. I would throw in logistics. I mean, it's not mutually exclusive, but yeah. I would throw logistics down yeah. there as well. And we kind of transition depending on the times. Um, in the, of course, in the high growth phase, you just want to have, you know, operations that are working and not breaking. Yep. And then you kind of just focus on growth, growth, growth at a reasonable and sustainable pace. But then, of course, you know, when you have the current climate or macro kind of economic challenges, then, of course, you kind of reprioritize, you know, looking at stuff you may be overlooked or yep. taken for granted earlier. And that's something we have kind of doubled down on, you know, when you don't have the luxury of a tailwind of a booming market. So in that sense, we transition and we do look at costs as well, how to make that more efficient of our capital. And in good times, it's very easy to just get a very bloated organization or like, let's say reckless, but your risk appetite changes mm. in some yeah. yeah, I totally agree. I think if, if there's one thing that I think has helped us and we've realized, you know, has been valuable, so we're doing it even better now, is that, you know, doing a lot of back of the envelope means that the process doesn't take as long as doing, you know, super deep analysis. And sometimes I guess there's more value that, to doing back of the envelope for all sides of the business because it helps you with forecasting and planning, you know, multiple areas. Logistics being one of them, for example, yeah. where with logistics is, is a pretty slow part of e-com in terms of a lot of areas like working with tech partners, they can be pretty fast. You can implement stuff. You can launch A-B tests, commercial rate optimization, advertising. We can launch in a new country in six and a half minutes if we want. Yeah. But comparing that to logistics, it's like, okay, we're, we have our logistics center here. We're sending here. And all of a sudden, this happened, say, last year. Australia just blew up. We were like, wow, we're getting orders from Australia. Australia has a VAT of 10%. There's a massive demand for product X. Let's see what we can do. So we just started advertising a little bit, and Australia became 20 30% of our, our wow. uh, revenue. 
and you know, great market. Okay, what do we do? Do we hire a country manager and set up a third-party logistic locally? Yeah. Do we turn off Australia because this is going to eat into our profit margins and it's going to be a difficult story to you know talk to potential investors in the future about? What do we do? And in this case where logistics is the main cost driver hindering you from really going hard in the market, that's a very difficult decision to make, right? We're sitting here where like Australia scaling is going to cast a massive shadow on the rest of our countries that are super profitable. What do we do here? But at least when looking at this, we could kind of forecast and say, okay, here's what we expect Australia to be in, you know, the coming 12 months. Yeah. Should we move all of our logistics to Singapore? Does that work? You, you know what I mean? So that, yeah. Australia was an extreme example, but say this would have happened in, I don't know, Belgium. Right? Yeah. And maybe we need to move all our logistics to the Czech Republic. And yeah. Maybe that's the solution. And that's a planning and move and the cost and everything of that would be like a year and a half from now. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're not supposed to scale in Belgium until then, right? Yeah. But knowing that you can achieve a higher profit margin when your warehouse has moved. Yeah doesn't mean you can lose money today or for us we don't want yeah, yeah, yeah. to lose money. so we, we've um we've battled with that in quite a bit i think and gotten to a point where it's like okay we do these calculations and we both feel like we're at a point with the business now where we don't want to keep doubling the size of the business every year which we've tripled or doubled yeah. so far mm. which i'm very happy about because now you know we can sort of forecast and make decisions not ad hoc but yeah you have more data year to back it up. yeah yeah and of course, there are benefits with size, well, not huge or anything, but there are like realizations of economies of scale. Yeah, of course. Both from the freight side, but also from the production side, you know, naturally you have more bargaining power. So that helps a lot. Mm. But yeah, I guess being an international first company, it's it has its logistical challenges. Yeah. Because I guess if you're like Nordic, purely Nordic focused and you have a Nordic base, I mean, freight cost is way lower and quicker. Yeah. Do you think that basically not being able to like have different point where you would basically ship to different countries has been a challenge? I mean, especially I mean, in the case of Australia, of course, it's extremely big. But we have also seen that with some of our customers, you know, especially when they go quite early on, we talked about it in the US. And I mean, of course, if you ship from Sweden, then you also start to have like problem with taxes, like customs, a lot of manual work, service. So then at some point when you grow, then it makes sense to open a 3PL there. But we also can feel, you know, the challenge of choosing the right partner, having all the integrations in place with warehouse management systems, the shipping providers and everything. So it just increases the complexity just like threefold. Yeah. And, you know, the whole ethos of our business is to try to keep things as simple as possible. I mean, even last year, we kind of were tossing up the idea of opening a second warehouse in Central Europe. Yeah. Just to improve efficiency of delivery, but also cost. But then that also increases complexity by so much. Yeah. How do you divide the stock? Yeah, I was about to say about that. And then, you know, if you have just a few SKUs here and then a few there, and then you have to ship two packages to the same customer, it becomes a challenge. Yeah. Hard to manage. Mm. But then when it comes to operations, you are also very lean team. You are very good also with like automation in general. So. Can you maybe share a little bit of which part of the business you have implemented like automation tool from value early on? I don't know. I'm just thinking maybe customer service or you know, shipping. I guess um, returns and exchanges was an area. You know, when we started out, Ben was managing yeah. the support. And uh, I think very early on or pretty early on, we started talking about potentially automating it, you know, bringing yeah. on a partner. And for us at that size, that was a massive cost. Yeah. It was a pretty big cost. And I just quit your job and you're sitting and you're working at this startup. You're like, oh my God, can't I manage it and take that money? You know, 
oh, I, I like a normal salary. It'd be great. But that, that was one of the early ones, right? And Ben did this estimate of like, okay, 80% or something like that of, of the tasks I work with are related to this that can be automated. Yeah. And when that happened, we were like, okay, we That's really doing, need to look yeah. at the alternative cost, the opportunity cost of our time. Yeah. Yeah. If we actually believe in our ability to have an incremental impact on this business yeah. by spending more time doing, let's say, I'm not going to call support unsophisticated, that wouldn't be mm. fair, but say tasks that are more in line with our, say, more revenue generating key competences, yeah. then that's where we should spend our time, right? Yeah. So we automated that. And then there are other business areas, say, within marketing that you can automate as well. Within email, for example, a yeah. lot of it is automation and email flows and you know when you talk about it and think about it you're like oh my god that's great we can automate these back in stock emails we can automate yeah, the yeah, abandoned yeah. cart you can even set up flows and automate uh, churn emails for people who didn't buy in the last yeah, six yeah, months yeah. and send them i don't yeah. know 15 percent off code yeah. whatever do another put episode about right. <laughs> email right. marketing the thing with that is what i i feel that most businesses are missing and something that we're really trying to focus on now yeah. is People see automations as like, okay, great. Now we've outsourced this kind of for free or for this tech cost and it's not a part of our business anymore. And that's, it just becomes a massive disadvantage because everyone is automating these things. And if you don't have a really good process of, instead of sitting, sending those emails manually, creating them every month, now you have a massive process to continuously improve on. Yeah. If you're not setting up your A-B exactly. test and getting better, it's a process of its yeah. own. Probably even more sophisticated than just sitting there coming up with stuff on the spot. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you have more opportunity to actually get the data from everything you do when it's automated. Yes. Yeah, super interesting. Exactly, especially the automating, getting reviews or getting product feedback. It's just finding ways to automate those kind of like data collection is fantastic. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that we automate everything because it's, it's more of the process. And a lot of stuff is, I wouldn't say it's creative, creative, but there is the touch of the human touch that is yeah. still necessary, especially for driving business. Yeah, of course. I mean, especially, I mean, we've seen like a lot of tools that we collaborate with for customer service, particularly in a solution which can, you know, and this chatbot and everything. But at some point also like brands, I mean, customer wants to interact and have this human touch, right? So you, it's always like a, a good balance to find between automating and then keeping the relationship with the customer. So to not make it not personal. Yeah, that's a really good example. We've tried the chatbots and we decided against it. Yeah. Purely due to the reason you name. Yeah. But then, I mean, automation is one part of it, but then I guess process and structure, maybe less exciting is another one. Mm. I mean, when you look at some of these technology companies, you guys are one yourself, what we found were that a lot of these tech companies, you know, they worked, well, a lot of project management software, right? but it's like a money.com or whatever. And, you know, they had these kind of really structured ways of working collaboratively, cross-functionally. And that's something that we try to, do from day one but it's only like maybe in the recent year or two that we've actually honed down into like using these project ma management softwares um i mean i can yeah, imagine yeah, getting yeah. a whole company to yeah, like yeah. <laughs> get on a system because both kush and i work in completely different ways mm. kush is this more creative he comes up with ideas on the fly whereas i'm the guy who is like being super like picking the naming conventions of our Dropbox files. Yeah. <laughs> I really have to give credit to Ben for that. I think that's, the, if there's one thing we can mention as why we work well together is that Ben is the structured one. And Ben often brings me back to, to the ground. Like I can drift away in ideas and I, yeah. you know, I'm confident about my business savviness and my abilities to come up with good stuff, but ideas are cheap. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool. But I feel that's a good conclusion. So thank you very much for coming and sharing your experience with Nine Pine. If you have any 
news, like exciting stuff to share? Do, do we have anything in particular to share? We have some really exciting stuff coming and being restocked. Okay. So definitely check that out because we believe, you know, having a lot of our revenue concentrated in a very few products, yeah. the most important part of our growth is launching the right stuff. And I'm very confident that we're launching the right stuff. Thank you very much, Ben and Kusha, for joining us on Lie Live. This episode was super interesting because we really delve into various topics which are crucial for brand success. Customer loyalty, growth, acquisition, cash flow management, logistics, and of course, automation. So the first key takeaways from Ben and Kusha's discussion is the significance of creating an exceptional experience for your customers in order to boost customer loyalty and encouraging repeat purchases. And for that to happen, Ben and Kusha emphasize the importance of offering relevant products to your existing customer base to not fall into the trap and become just another fast fashion label. So by restocking bestseller, you stay true to your brand and ensure you always have a collection that resonates with your audience. And nine pound growth in just three years is super impressive. And that was very interesting to hear how their day-to-day is and how they make it work with just two people. So the expression who wear different hats has never been more real as Ben and Kusha juggle different positions and tasks. But they both agree that one of the most important things to run a business is to trust data. So taking a data-driven approach paves the way for efficient choices to maximize your impact. And on top of that, they're also quite into automation tasks and processes, of course. However, to a certain extent, to be able to maintain the human touch and build genuine connection with their customers. And this leads us to another vital growth aspect when you run a direct consumer brand is your cash flow management. And Ben and Kush emphasize the importance of profitability, which allows to reinvest earnings into the business. And by financing your growth without relying on external debt or investment, you obviously gain more control and build a solid foundation for a long-term success. And before I close this off, I want to touch upon another topic that we discussed today. And even if logistics may not be the most glamorous topic in the fashion world, it plays a very vital role in your brand's growth and success. And Ben and Kusha today really share the need to balance growth with operational efficiency, especially in the current economic landscape. So by planning and forecasting, it will be much easier to identify opportunities, potential roadblock, and also the chance to grow globally. So if you plan to expand beyond Europe, especially consider logistics costs and make data-driven decisions to ensure a sustainable growth for your brand. So once again, thank you very much, Ben and Kusha, for joining us on this week's episode. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you found this episode informative and picked up a few new things. And we'll be back soon with a new episode. Have a good one.